Welcome to the Overflow Podcast. We pray you are encouraged by this message. For more info, notes, or other messages, download the Overflow Church app or visit our website at overflowdfw.com. Today I want to start off by talking about a, a TV show that started uh, airing about 1997. Now, I guarantee you, if you haven't seen this TV show, you're at least aware of this TV show, okay? It aired on PBS, all right, our favorite public broadcasting station. It was called Antiques Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow. Everybody knows about Antiques Roadshow. And that became a huge sensation, okay? And I was trying to think, why exactly is Antiques Roadshow something that's very interesting? Well, it's because everybody has junk in their basement, and they want to think that it's valuable. My mother has these uh, Humboldt figurines. I don't know what a Humboldt figurine is, but every time I've said I'm broke, she goes, you need to eBay them Humboldt figurines, you know? I don't know what they are, but she thinks they're valuable. But it wasn't just the stuff that people brought in that made it great. I mean, that was interesting. But what really made that show great were the experts, the appraisers, because they would look at, at the stuff that had been set in the, in the basements of all these people, and they said, oh, this is worth thousands of dollars. This is, this is an extremely valuable vase right here. People were amazed at what their junk was worth. So I'm coming to you today as an appraiser. I'm coming to you today to help you understand your value, to help you understand your true value. I'm an expert today. Now, you may have heard messages like this before, and that's okay. Uh, you know, Paul spoke on that. He said, my dear brothers and sisters, uh, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you the same things. He never gets tired of telling you the same things. So if you've heard this before, don't worry. Even houses need to get reappraised every few years. Even houses need to get looked over and say, yes, the value's gone up. So I say it this way. I say repetition leads to retention. Retention leads to revelation, and revelation leads to application in your life. If you hear things over and over, you begin to re remember them. When you remember them, you begin to understand them, and when you understand it, you can apply it to your own life. So today we're talking about, I'm going to start by talking about art. And I want to say, what makes a masterpiece valuable? What makes a masterpiece valuable? Well, I think that three things kind of make it valuable. Number one is the length of time that it, that it took to create it. Number two are the materials that it was created out of. And number three is the craftsmanship that went into it. So if you could put that first picture up there, please. All right. I'm going to step down here. That first picture uh, right there. Okay, so this is the Mona Lisa right here. Everybody can see that now? So uh, this is stored in the Louvre in Paris, France. And in 1963, they had it appraised to see the value so they could insure it. They appraised it at over $100 million. Okay? So now in your head, do you imagine that the Mona Lisa is a big picture? In your mind, do you think that it's a big picture? It is not. It is not. It's probably about as big as this podium head right here. It's a small portrait valued at $100,000, $100 million. And today it's considered a national treasure by France, and it's illegal to sell it. 
So why is this valuable? Why is that valuable? Well, it took about 15 years to create. It took about 15 years. He started it in 1503, and he was working on it all the way up until 1517. Leonardo da Vinci was. So it took a long time to create. What's it made out of? Well, it's an oil painting on canvas, so nothing particularly extravagant. But the craftsmanship, the skill that it took to create that is incredible. That's what makes that valuable. So if you go to the next picture, please. Right. We know this as the statue of David, and I had to pick this particular picture because that statue is anatomically correct. So, <laughs> so uh, this was carved by a gentleman named uh, Michelangelo. Uh, it took over 30 years from inception to finish this. It actually had three main uh, sculptors working on it. Michelangelo was the one who actually finished it. Um, and uh, he actually worked on it for about two years straight. When Michelangelo got it, uh, just the kind of the outline of, of where what it was going to look like up top was done, and the outside of the legs had been shaped. And then there was a hole in between the legs, and he came in and he finished it. It currently weighs six tons. Six tons. Can you imagine what that block of marble was like when they first got it? Uh, you know, so the... So the marble it's made out of is very valuable. It took a long time to, rec- to create. Um, and it had incredible skill to put into there. Now, here's just a fun fact for you. You know, I said it's anatomically correct. When they first displayed it, it had a loincloth on it. So it wasn't always meant to be displayed the way it is now. But that's valuable. So if you go to the next picture for me, please. All right. So now the, we might not think of this as a masterpiece as... as the other two pieces of art. This is a car called a Bugatti Veyron, okay? This is the fastest production car in the world with a top speed of over 254 miles an hour. Uh, You want to know how much one of these costs? It can be yours for a cool $1.5 million. Uh, It's made from steel, aluminum, carbon fiber, so not incredibly rare materials, you know? So, uh... It takes about two years from the time you order one for them to deliver it. That's how long it takes to, to make it. There's only 450 of them ever made. Um, 1,000 to 1,200 horsepower. So why is this thing worth so much? <laughs> why is it worth so much? It's because of the precise engineering that was put into it in order for it to be able to be made. So... These are all masterpieces. We would call that a masterpiece. Even that car right there, we'd call that a masterpiece. I call that a masterpiece. I'm not a car person, but I can look at that and see, see that it is an, a masterpiece of engineering. But let me tell you something. You're a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Another translation says, you're God's workmanship. You're God's workmanship. You know, everything in the world that God created, he did it with his voice until he got to man. Read it. He said he spoke everything into existence until he got to man. 
And then he put his own hands down in the dirt and formed man out of the dust and the clay. Read it. God got his hands dirty when he made you. That's how valuable you are. So let's, so let's see this. According to our three characteristics of value, let's see how, how you are valuable. Okay, So the length of time that it took to create you. Nine months. You spent nine months to create you. From inception to birth, nine months. It's not a particularly long time. There's some home improvement projects that take longer than nine months. You can just ask my dad. So what about the materials that you were created out of? Well, you're mostly water and carbon. And uh, I read an article that says that if they took all the raw materials in you and sold them, you'd be worth about $5. About $5. So it's not the materials that makes you value. What about the skill that was used to create you? Well, a man doesn't put a whole lot of skill into creating a baby. You know, they might think they do, but it's really just a a matter of anatomy that creates a baby. So it's not skill that makes you valuable. So why, why why was Paul saying that you're a masterpiece? It's gotta be something different. It's gotta be something different. Gotta be something different. So, my question is what truly assigns value? We know what makes art valuable, but what makes you valuable? What truly assigns value to you? So we're going to go through these. I've, I've identified some of them, okay? So if you just uh, hold on, I'll tell you. Number one, usefulness. Usefulness. You are useful. You are useful. So I always carry with me two things, and people think I'm weird. I don't smoke, but I carry a lighter, and I carry a pocket knife. Why? Because I'm prepared. One day, they're going to come in handy. One day, you're going to be happy that I have a lighter and a pocket knife, and you're going to say, you know what? That lighter's valuable. That pocket knife is valuable because it has a use. It's going to have a use. My, my fiancé is laughing at me because I open everything with my knife because I want to use it. <laughs> you have a use. You are useful. The Word says that we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. There are things that only you can do. Only you can do. There are people that only you can reach. I can't reach them. God created you for a purpose. God created you for a reason. He has something for you to do in this life, and that makes you valuable. That's not the only thing, though. Sentimental value. You have sentimental value. Now, let me define that for you for just a second. Um, Sentimental value is... It's something that you really care about. Something that you really care about. Uh, who here remembers their childhood very well? I, I really don't, but I do have one memory of about three years old where I had a stuffed dinosaur, a red Tyrannosaurus, that his name was Red. And I, I remember him not because of the dinosaur, not because of that, but I remember when we were in Nebraska... And this is like the only memory I have of that time is we left him in a hotel room. 
And he was lost. And, of course, I was a crybaby. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And we tried to go back to the hotel and they couldn't find him. And, and I was crushed. And I, I remember this. So that I, I don't remember much about my childhood. I remember that. I remember that. Because it had sentimental value to me. A five, ten dollar stuffed animal meant the world to me because it had sentimental value. So I cared about that dinosaur a lot. But let me tell you something. The Lord cares about you a whole lot. The Lord cares about you a lot. First Peter five seven it says, Cast all your worries and cares to God. Because he cares about you. Think about all those think about all those horrible pieces of artwork that you that you made as a kid that your parents held on to for a long time. They they it wasn't great. I mean, just to be honest, it was an awful drawing. But they held on to it because it meant some because you meant so much to them. That handprint uh, Christmas ornament, they kept it for a long time. Let me tell you something. They're not valuable because they're a piece of art. They're valuable because they cared about you. And the Lord doesn't look at you and say, you're valuable because you're a piece of art that I've created. You're valuable because I love you and I care about you. That's what makes you valuable in the Lord's eyes. God truly cares about us, and that adds to our true value. But that's not just it. There are people around you that care about you. There are people around you that care about you. Just imagine if you were at a funeral and all the people that, that are there, they miss that person because they cared about him. Because they cared about him. They're not thinking about, oh, I miss him because, you know, he was a, a great friend and we would go and play football and play video games. They say, I miss him because I loved him. I liked that guy a lot. I cared about him and I miss him now. And I'm going to miss him. You have sentimental value. So what else brings you value? What else makes you valuable? Well, I'd say another thing that makes, th- makes you valuable is that make, what makes something valuable is joy. When joy is received from something, that makes it valuable. Okay? So uh, growing up as a kid... I was a video game nerd, and I would uh, I loved my Nintendo 64. In fact, I've been talking to my fiance about going on eBay and buying one because I because I want one. I, I remember the times that that was that thing cost maybe two hundred dollars at the time. You know, I mean that's a nice amount of money. It's not not nothing, but it brought so much joy to me, and I, it was my most valuable possession. You know, I, I loved it. Not because of how much it was worth, but because of the joy that it brought me. Hebrews 12.2 says, 12.1 and 2. I'm going to read this verse to get to the part that I want to talk about. Hebrews 12.1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and protector of our faith. Now, this is the important part right here. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. Let me tell you something. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. You are the reason that he endured the cross. He was on the cross, and I like to say it this way. He was on the cross, and he looked 2,000 years into the future and said, Cotton, you are my joy, and I'm dying for you. You are the joy that was set before the Lord. And because you bring the Lord joy, that adds to your value. So what else makes you valuable? Well, the true the true test of value is this, I would say, is what someone is willing to pay for it. What someone is willing to pay for it. So, back in the 90s, there was another crazy craze. Uh, y'all might have uh, been a part of this, too. Do y'all remember when Beanie Babies were a thing? <laughs> I remember uh, my mother, there was, uh, there was a, uh, always a guy who set up this, this little tear-down tent, and he would go out and sell Beanie Babies, and my mother and my sister and I would go, and we would look at the Beanie Babies. My sister was really into them. And we would go in there, and we would be looking for the rare Beanie Babies. Oh, I got to get those rare Beanie Babies, you know? I got to get something that has a misprint on the tag, or I got to get something that's not in the right color. Well, let me tell you something. The most expensive Beanie Baby that I've ever seen that I, I was, when I was researching this, there was a Beanie Baby that sold for $7,500, okay? It was a bear, a little bear in a chef coat, and it sold for seven and a half grand. I don't have seven and a half thousand dollars, but if I did, I would not spend it on a Beanie Baby. <laughs> no way, no how. But to somebody, to somebody... That was valuable enough to spend the price of a used car. To somebody, they said that, that this, little, this little piece of, uh, of fabric and plastic is valuable enough that I'm willing to uh, spend that much money on it. Let me tell you something. That's the true test of value, is what are you willing to spend on it? What are you actually willing to shell out of your pocket for something? Jesus taught in parables so that, uh, so that preachers would have sermon material. So in Matthew 13, 44, it says this. It's Jesus teaching in a parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buy that field. And if that parable wasn't enough, he backs it up with a, another parable reiterating the same point. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had for it. This parable is talking about something of great value. Okay, And the man... In the parable is the Lord. And he comes across a field. He comes across a field and he sees something inside of it that nobody else saw. Because if people had known 
what was in that field, they wouldn't be selling it. It had great value. And he says, oh, I see it. I see it. There's value inside of that. So I'm going to go and sell everything that I have in order to buy it. And then it talks about a man looking for jewelry. He was looking for pearls. And if you know anything about pearls is that they come in oysters, but it's kind of a crapshoot. You never really know if it's going to have a pearl inside of it. But he found an oyster, a nasty creature that lives in the bottom of the sea and lives off of filtered seawater. But there was something inside of it, something inside of it. And he saw it and he said, that's valuable. That's valuable. And he goes and he sells everything, everything he has. Just imagine this. Jesus in heaven sitting right next to God and looking down on every one of us says, I'm willing to give up heaven to go to earth. And not just that, he comes to earth and he says, I'm willing to give up my life for all of you. The true way that you know that you're valuable is that Jesus paid everything that he had to purchase you. That's how you know you're valuable. He gave it all. He gave it all. He died on a cross. He gave up heaven, came to earth, was splayed out on a cross, and killed, sacrificed for you and I. Because you're valuable. Because you're worth it. So, if we have something of value, we really need to take care of it. So, this morning I drew a little picture. This is uh, me and my fiance Charlotte and our brand new puppy, uh, Scout, right here. So, uh, this is not very valuable. This is, you know, <laughs> the material is just a piece of white paper that I stole from the office. And um, the, I think I drew it in about 45 seconds. And um, uh, the craftsmanship is just really poor. So, so, because it has no value, I have no problem in ripping it up. I have no problem in folding it. I have no problem in throwing it at Chris Frost's face. <laughs> because it holds no value. It's just a crappy drawing that I put together to illustrate this point. If you have value, if you have something of value, then you have a responsibility to protect it. You have a responsibility to take care of it. You have a responsibility to the person who bought it. If the Lord purchased you with his own life, then you have a responsibility to him with yours. So, but you might say, great, I'm understanding my value. You're talking about value, about masterpiece. But my life's a mess. <laughs> you don't understand my life. I, I, I've been where you're at, trust me. I've been where you're at. Because God isn't just about appraising your value. He's also about restoring your value. Restoring your value. And he's a good, he's a good restorer. Not a, not a crappy restorer. Will you put up that picture right there? 
This is, a, this is a fresco that was painted in the 1800s in Spain. A fresco is a painting that's painted directly onto the wall. This is, in a, uh, this is in a monastery in Spain. It was painted in the 1800s. The one on the left is what it looked like. And they said, you know what? Let's restore this thing. It, it's, it holds significant value. We want to take care of it. Let's hire this amateur artist to come and restore this thing. And this is the result on the end right there. Yes, so uh, anyway, I wouldn't trust an amateur to restore me. I wouldn't trust an amateur to restore my family, my friends. I would trust someone who has proven himself to be a restorer. I would trust someone who cares enough to take time in the restoration. As I was thinking about what story I want to use from the Bible to illustrate this, I, I thought, oh man, a story about Jesus restoring something, I feel like I have too many options, you know? And I was just reading, I was just reading, and I came across this one, and now I've, I've read this story before, and I've, you know, journaled about this story before, and I've heard sermons speak about this story before, but it never just like jumped off the page as it did right as I was preparing for this. It's in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. It says, Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a picture of restoration. A perfect picture perfect picture of restoration. A couple of takeaways that I want to, before we start talking about this, is I want to talk about is, number one, is that this lady not only lost her son, but she also lost her husband. So she was a widow. She didn't have any more sons. So in Jewish culture, they would consider her very poor. She would be destitute. She had no one to take care of her. No husband to take care of her. No sons to take care of her. She was on her own, at the mercy of the kindness of strangers. Can you imagine that if you had no hope in your life to take care of it? This lady had no hope. Her son had zero hope. He was dead. But she had no hope. So it's a funeral procession. They're taking the son out of the city because a dead body was not allowed in the city. And Jesus came up and stopped them. Okay, And when he approached, he's a known rabbi. People address him as rabbi. He's a teacher. They know he's a teacher. And he stopped them. Now, could you imagine the scene? I'm trying to take my son out to be buried. He's dead. I'm lost. I'm destitute. And you want to stop my son's funeral for what? What do you want, rabbi? I don't need a lesson about God. I have no hope. And Jesus came up to 
came up to he didn't talk to her. Well, he said, "Don't cry." But he went up to the he went up to the um, to where the young man was laying, and he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. He just walked up to him, and he reached out. Now Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis are not allowed to touch dead bodies. It's illegal. It's against Levitical law. He is not allowed to touch it. Can you imagine the scene? Don't touch that. He's dead. You can't touch that. But he did. And he lifted the boy up back to life. And he gave him back to his mother. So I think you see three keys to restoration in this story. And number one is... First, you have to allow restoration to take place. Can you imagine if the lady had stopped Jesus from touching her son? She said, no, no, that's my dead boy right there. You're not allowed to touch him. Let me go bury my son. Imagine if that had happened. He never would have been brought back to life. If you want restoration in your life, I don't care what it is. If you want restoration in your life, you have to allow it to happen. Broken bones have to be set in order to be mended. Burns have to have dead dead skin scraped away from them for them to heal properly. Sometimes blind eyes have to have spit mud rubbed all into them in order for restoration to take place. You know, I can think of... uh, I can think of many stories where Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be restored? I can't think of any stories where Jesus restored someone against their will. I can't think of any stories where Jesus came and, and someone was happy with where they were at and he said, no, I'm going to heal you anyway. They had to allow the restoration to happen. You have to allow the restoration to happen. Number two is restoration is messy, it's uncomfortable, and it's not always looked at upon as something that's good. So my background is I'm I'm a Teen Challenge graduate. Okay, we had Teen Challenge out uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I was uh, I was really really addicted. I came to Teen Challenge. I got set free, radically transformed. This was uh, a little over six years ago, but we would go out to fundraise, and to tell people about the program. We say, hey, we're a men's discipleship program where men and women, we're a men's discipleship program where men get set free from drug addiction by the power of God. And they say, ew, I don't want anything to do with that. Why not? That's awesome. That's great. I was, I was charged up about it. But people didn't like it. They looked at it as, Ooh, that's taboo. I don't want anything to do with that. That's messy. Those people don't don't deserve to be brought back to life. Those people are trash. Throw them in jail. That's where they belong. I remember one lady came by and I said, Hey, can I talk to you about our program? She goes, It won't work for one in a hundred. And I said, Well, I must be that one because I'm set free. People are not always going to be happy when you're trying to reach to have restoration in your life. These people around the, the, the woman and the dead body, they stopped because they said, because, because it was strange. They, didn't, they were trying to do something and they had to stop in their place. But Jesus came and restored that young man. 
the last takeaway from the story I want to say is that restoration doesn't only affect you, but it affects others around you too. So the lady was a widow, no income. She had no other sons. Who did Jesus restore in this instance? I'd say he restored the man back to life, the young man back to life, because that's who he went to, that's who he touched, that's who he, you know, healed back to life. That man was restored. But imagine how the woman was affected by this. Because her son was brought back to life, now she has an income. Now she has hope. Your restoration doesn't only affect you, but it brings life to others as well. Just think of this. When you, were, when you got saved and you were hanging around the people around you, didn't they say, something's different about you? I don't know what it is. Something's different, different about you. Maybe you don't have the same experience that I did, but when you got saved, the people around you said, you're changed. What is it? What is it? What is it? Because your restoration experience doesn't affect only you, but it affects all the people that you have influence with. So if you put that last picture up there for me. This right here is a, uh, it's what's called kintsukuri. okay? This is a Japanese art form. It's where they take broken pottery and they restore it through plaster with gold mixed into it, okay? So the people who make this, they refuse to break pottery, they will not, they, if they wanted to make a Kori piece, they would not go and buy a cup and break it. But rather, they would go and find a broken cup to repair. As a philosophy, it treats the breakage and repair as a part of the history of the object, rather than something to disguise. They don't try to make it look like it's new because it's not, but it's been restored and it's valuable because of the restoration. About, about six years ago, I gave my heart to the Lord in a, in a little tiny chapel in a, in a Teen Challenge men's home in South Alabama. And um, I, <laughs> I was so broken. I had been on drugs for so long. I wanted to change, but I had no way out. I had, I had no hope in my life. I, I went to Teen Challenge because I didn't want to go to prison, but I got there. And, and my, the guy who, who has the most influence in my life, he comes to me and he goes, he goes, do you feel like you need to be clean to come to God? And I said, I don't know why you'd like me the way I am. He goes, oh, no. You don't, you don't get clean to come to God. That's not how it works. You come to God dirty and broken, and He fixes you and He cleans you. You know that was that was mind blowing to me. That was mind blowing to me. And I stayed at Teen Challenge for a year as a student, and then after that, I said, "You know what? I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the Lord." So I I stayed on at Teen Challenge for another year as an intern, making fifty dollars a week. <laughs> but I was I was able to pour into people's lives, and it was incredible. I was seeing men give their hearts to God and get set free from drug addiction. And when their families would come and, and to visit them, I said, isn't it great to have your son back? Isn't it great to have your husband back? 
it was incredible. I, I, it was such an awesome, awesome experience in my life. But then I got to the end of that year and I said, you know what? I know that this is what the Lord has called me to do and I want to further my education. I want to, I want to go to Bible college. And so I asked my Bible teacher and I said, uh, where should I think about going to Bible college? He said, Christ for the Nations Institute, brother. I said, well, where else? Nowhere else. <laughs> That's where you need to go. And so I came. I came. I've been saved for two and a half years by this point. Set free from drug addiction by the power of God. Preaching hope to men who had no hope. And I got to Christ for the Nations and I realized I was still messed up. I still had shame problems in my life. I couldn't talk to women. Not, not in like flirty way. I couldn't have a conversation with you. I'd be looking at your shoes. Hey, how you doing? I had so much shame. So much shame. I didn't know that I was valuable. I had no idea that I carried value to someone else. This is after I'd been preaching. This is after I'd been ministering. And I still, I still didn't get it. I went on this mission trip. This was a pivotal point in my life, my first semester at Christ for Nations. And I started talking to this girl. And we started hanging out a lot. And it's at that point in time, when that didn't work out, which is fine. Bless her, she's doing awesome things in the Lord right now. When that didn't work out, I was crushed and I said, God, I thought I heard from you. I thought I heard from you because you know that that's the desire of my heart. I thought I heard from you. And the Lord said, you did hear from me. But why do you think I told you that? Why do you think I told you to pursue that girl when it wasn't working out? Because I wanted you to know that you are valuable and that you had something to offer to someone. So here I am. About two years after that, two and a half years after that, and Charlotte and I are getting married in three weeks. <laughs> because I allowed the Lord to speak.